I've been allowed to take the first few minutes of my time this morning to give a brief report on my missions trip to Jordan last month. Before I mention that, uh, Eric prayed for Zaporosha. It's a city in Ukraine where there's a Zaporosha Bible College that I've taught at three or four times. So there are believers there in harm's way as well. And we want to remember that. But back to Jordan, of the 37 countries I've had the privilege to teach in during the last 25 years, Jordan's one of my favorite destinations, of course, because of the rich biblical history of that area. But it's also a land of arid beauty with many, many olive trees dotting the landscape. The Muslim call to prayer echoing through the hills several times a day is a reminder, though, that Christianity is a minority religion in the Holy Land. Amman, the capital of Jordan, where I was, is only 60 miles from Jerusalem. So that reminder is moving even more to be with Middle Eastern believers and see their passion for the Lord in spite of the special challenges they face. First of Anne, of course, has a long history in Jordan because of the hospital in Mafrak, where we've sent a number of missionaries over the years. I went to teach at Jordan Evangelical Theological Seminary, which recently celebrated its 20th anniversary. Dr. Ahmad Shahada, who has been in this pulpit before and is a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, started that seminary and continues to lead it. He's a man of true vision, profound faith, and courage in that context. The school draws students from across the Arabic-speaking world, that is the Middle East, North Africa, and down into Sudan as well. The government allows the seminary to operate openly, but with a few restrictions. They're not allowed to enroll any Muslim converts. The school would be shut down immediately if they did that. They can only teach people from traditional Christian backgrounds. And the number of visas that the students are granted from other countries is severely limited. Dr. Ahmad estimates the seminary could be perhaps four times bigger if all the visas they applied for were granted. I'm always moved at the seminary to see the prayer tower in the middle of the campus, which boldly and publicly declares in Greek, Christ in you, the hope of glory in the heart of the Middle East. Last Wednesday, JETS held its first graduation ceremony in three years. A couple of you told me you were able to uh, stream that live. Because of COVID, they had to wait, and 80 students uh, received their degrees. And somebody mentioned uh, before the service of watching that how moving it was to consider the impact of these 80 students going out into the Arabic-speaking world as uh, outposts for the gospel. I taught my course, not every day dressed like this, but I taught my course on biblical foundations of worship for the ninth time at Jets, the seventh time in person. The last two years I had to do it over Zoom. But I had a good group of 10 students, five from Jordan, three from Sudan, one from South Sudan, and one Iraqi living in Greece. He had, of course, had to Zoom in as, as did a couple of the other students. Here are the students I had from Sudan and South Sudan. I think it's interesting, everywhere I go in the world to uh, teach, when I meet believers from Sudan, I always ask them, do you know Pastor Ismail Kunda, who as you know is the pastor of our Sudanese congregation here uh, in Memphis? 
And invariably, when I ask them, do you know him? They say, yes, <laughs> everywhere. He's, he's like a rock star among Sudanese believers. Everybody knows who he is. In the middle of the two-week course, I also presented an evening seminar based on my book, Proclamation and Praise, which the seminary had just published there in Arabic. Here I am with my translator, Iyad. About 50 church leaders from the region attended, including several former students of mine from years past. One young Egyptian named Yusuf led worship and also shared how the course he took uh, from me nine years ago had impacted his life and ministry, and that was really encouraging to hear. At the end of the seminar, copies of my book in Arabic were then given out to those who attended. One especially moving moment came in one of the post-seminar discussions I had. In my talk, I'd emphasized the importance in worship, not only of preaching, but also of the people's praises lifted to God. As Hebrews 2.12 shows, Jesus Christ himself speaking to the Father and saying, in the midst, I will tell of your name, Father, to my brethren, and in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Hebrews 2.12 shows Jesus Christ himself in the midst of both the preaching and the praise aspects of the service leading the people. One young man from Iraq came up to me after the seminar and told me, in our church services in Iraq, we have no singing because it is too dangerous for them to sing out loud. And so he asked me with concern, does that mean we're not worshiping? I quickly assured him that God understood their hearts of worship and understood their situation and valued their worship lifted up to him even when singing was not possible. So please pray for Jets, an incredibly strategic ministry preparing church leaders for the Arab-speaking countries of the region. Now we turn to our message from God's word. Thanks for letting me share those things. We want to consider this morning the gospel in two words. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we find Paul making a statement that plums the depths of God's redemptive work through Christ and the relationship with him, which we annoy, enjoy because of that. And Paul encapsulates that huge truth in two little words. Now, Paul had an interesting relationship with the Corinthian church. He loved the people. He rejoiced in them and in their salvation. First Corinthians 1, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. And yet, he felt in that same letter compelled to address serious issues in that church. Issues of disunity, issues of moral behavior, issues of worship, issues of doctrine. It's at least encouraging to see that those issues are hardly new in the body of Christ. He was dealing with them as well. In 2 Corinthians 1 verse 16, we read that Paul had been planning to visit Corinth twice more before and after going to Macedonia. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. However, apparently he then decided to redirect his itinerary. 
And it seems that some opponents of his in that church had taken advantage of the change of plans to accuse Paul of vacillation and unreliability. So in verse 17, Paul defends the sincerity of his motives and claims that his planning was not undertaken lightly. It was not yes one minute and no the next, even though circumstances had necessitated a change in his plans. And so he writes, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Paul insists that he is a man of his word. He defends himself as the messenger because he wants to defend the message that he had brought to them, as we see in verse 18. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. Paul maintains that there was no mixed message, no one could sound from the trumpet when it came to the gospel that he and his companions proclaimed in Corinth. He says, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. Paul is saying there is unequivocally one way of salvation through Jesus Christ. And this, he says, is the message which he and Silvanus and Timothy preached to the Corinthians without wavering, without apology, without compromise, without vacillation. They were faithful messengers of God's message of salvation in Christ. Now, this is all a backdrop for Paul's profound declaration in verse 20. He says, first of all, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, that is, in Christ. With this little word for, Paul introduces the reason why it was Christ and Christ alone that he is, and his companions preached. It was because all the promises of God find their yes in him. God has put his stamp of approval on Christ. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The father has said yes to his son. And in Christ, we receive that approval, that yes as well. The first word of Paul's two-word gospel is yes. Jesus Christ is God's yes to us. In Christ, he fulfills all of his prophecies in the Old all that God planned for and promised to God and promised to mankind finds its completion in Christ. All the covenant promises made to Abraham and his seed are met in Christ. Galatians 3 says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Those promises are fulfilled. Colossians 1 says, for in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And in 1 Corinthians 1, he states, And because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Jesus says of himself in Revelation 22, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Christ is all of this. And all God's promises to us are yes in him, in Christ. Christ is the yes that answers all the questions of life. 
First and foremost, God says yes to us in Christ for our salvation. Our salvation is God saying yes to us in Christ. Because of his great love for us, God sent his son to remove the barrier of sin which was barring our access to a holy God. Through the death of Christ for us, God can be, as Paul says in Romans 3, both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Salvation is a free gift. God's yes to us because of the finished work of Christ. Grace is God saying yes to us in Christ, welcoming us into his family as we've just sung, regardless of what we've done or haven't done. When my children were young, they would come to me sometimes and ask for something or for permission to do something, and I tend to be a little indecisive, so my standard answer would always be, well, let me think about it a while. God is not like that. When we come humbly and repentantly to the foot of the cross, there is no let me think about it or come back later and we'll see. God's answer in Christ is always yes. Yes for our salvation. In Christ, God also says yes to us for our sanctification, that is for our living the Christian life. God is committed to himself to coming alongside us and helping us in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit to live for him. That's why Paul can say in Philippians 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's why the hymn says, may the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all I do and say. That's the grace of God for our sanctification as well as, our for sal- as for our salvation. That's God saying yes to all his promises to see us through, to sustain us, to empower us. God even says yes to us when we fall into sin as believers. If we are his children, he never walks away or gives up on us. Rather, he has provided the way through Christ for us to confess our sins and be immediately forgiven. That's God's yes for our restoration. When we face hardship and difficulties and suffering as believers, we need to remember that God hasn't suddenly changed his mind. His yes to us in Christ hasn't expired or become inoperative or been put on hold. It's vital to understand that in hard times, God is still saying yes to us to his higher purposes for us. That's what Romans 8, 28 is all about. He causes all things to happen together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All of that is part of his unchanging yes to us in Jesus Christ. As Paul goes on to say in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. In hard times, it can sometimes be hard to see But his yes to us in Christ has not been rescinded. God's enduring yes is our hope in hard times. God has said yes to us in Christ to provide for our needs as well. As Paul puts it in Philippians 4.19, My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory 
in Christ Jesus. And finally, our glorification in heaven will be the final consummation of God's yes to us as he welcomes us home to enjoy the full fruits of being his children and dwelling in his presence forever. All of this and more is available to us because we are in Christ, because God has said yes to all his promises in Christ. This is the grounds of our assurance, our confidence, our peace and joy. This is the grace of God, his unmerited, unconditional, eternal favor extended to us through his son. We stand forever secure in God's yes to us in Christ. Now, not all of us have grown up in an environment which was very positive and accepting. We may have a little trouble understanding or accepting the unconditional love of God and all that that means. I heard a professor say once that our natural tendency as human beings and even as Christians is sometimes to think, well, God doesn't really like me very much. How could he? But because of what Christ did, he feels constrained to have mercy on us. That is not the way God works. His love for you is as infinite as it is unearned. If you have come to Christ, he has said yes to you and he will never have second thoughts. He has said yes to your salvation. He has said yes to his continuing work in you for your sanctification. He says yes to the provision of our needs and our ultimate glorification. There is no yes, no, maybe. He is not a vacillator like us. His attitude towards you is yes, yes, yes. Bank on it. Believe in it. Bask in it. Count on it. Yes. And that brings us to the second half of 2 Corinthians 1.20, to the second word of Paul's two-word gospel. He says, for all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. That is why through him, through Christ, we utter our amen to God for his glory. Other religions get it exactly backwards when they have people trying to do enough things for God that he is somehow swayed to do something nice for them. Christianity is the opposite. It teaches God's gracious initiative in seeking and saving unworthy objects of his love. All that we are and all that we have in Christ comes as a free gift of God's grace as he says yes to us in Christ. And because of that unconditional yes, because God in Christ has done everything necessary for our salvation and our eternal destiny with him, all that's left for us to do is to accept and respond to God's yes. And that response, Paul summarizes with the word amen. Amen's always a response to something, isn't it? And here we see that we are to give our amen to God's wonderful yes to us in Christ. We're to respond in faith and gratefully accept all that God offers us in Christ. As Paul puts it in Romans 12:1, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that's his yes, his mercies that he's shed upon us. 
I urge you to present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice. That's an appropriate response, an appropriate amen to God's yes to us by his mercies. In fact, all of our worship, all of our service, all of our Christian living are simply ways to say amen to God because he has said yes to us in Christ. That's all that's left for us to do is to say amen because he's done it all. He's said yes to us in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, you have been bought with a price. God has said yes to you in Christ. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Give him your amen in the response of worship and service and Christian living. Our amen to God's yes means that we are acknowledging that it is all of God and all of grace. It's all yes in Christ. As one commentator put it, by saying amen to God's yes to us, thereby man confesses his own abject resourcelessness. It's all of God and magnifies the sovereign grace of his creator, redeemer. And that magnifying of the sovereign grace of our creator, redeemer, is what Paul ends this verse with. In 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1.20, it's all for his glory. All the promises of God find their yes in him so that we respond with our amen and it all ends up with the glory of God. This entire enterprise, this two-word gospel, this grace-induced divine favor lavished upon undeserving sinners like us, God saying yes to us in Christ, leaving nothing for us to do but respond with a life of grateful amen. This leaves all the glory to God. He has done it all. As 1 Corinthians 1.31 puts it, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's the gospel in two words. We boast in the Lord by our response of amen to God's yes to us in Christ, affirming that it's all of God and all of grace. To us, God said yes to all his promises in Jesus Christ. Let's first of all rest in the calm assurance and peace of his complete and utter acceptance, his unchanging yes. And let's respond to him with the grateful amen of our hearts, our voices, and our lives to the glory of his name. Let's pray together. If you're here today and perhaps have never trusted in this gift of God's yes to you in Jesus Christ, all you have to do is say amen to God's free offer of forgiveness and eternal life through Christ and his death on the cross for your sins. If you've already done that and you're a believer in Christ, then this is a time to consider, are you confidently resting in the joyful knowledge of his unyielding yes to you in Christ? Grasp onto it, hold onto it, never let go. His enduring eternal attitude to you is yes in Christ. Which one of his promises are you having trouble believing? 
Let's take a few quiet moments to consider what it means to be totally enveloped in God's eternal yes to us because he has lavished his grace upon us. Let's take a moment to offer a grateful amen for that precious truth. Let's do that silently for a few moments. Father, what an unbelievable truth that we are eternally secure in your yes, your all-encompassing yes to us in Christ. Forgive us when we lose sight of that. Thank you for that anchor for our soul. How we thank you for saying yes to us in Christ. We are amazed and can only humbly, gratefully, and joyfully answer amen. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.